0: If you were with us last year, we did go through a string of research reviews on decision-making, intelligence, motivation. Um, somebody is not muted there. Who, are you got it? Okay. Um, I, what I, I went back to the one we did last year on motivation, and I wanted to see what exactly we covered and make sure we do something different because... This is something that has really been uh, on my mind in terms of wanting to sort through every single angle we can. If you guys remember, where is it here? Uh, You know, this week for our two research reviews so far, we've been adding to some notes, trying to cover and investigate every facet of motive, decision-making, incentive, what makes us actually accomplish some goals and what makes it very difficult to accomplish others, So last year, we looked at a study that was, I think, the seminal part of Daniel Pink's premise uh, when he was talking about in his book, Drive, how not everybody's incentivized by the same things. And he particularly, speaking from an economics and a business management perspective, was showing that sometimes putting the incentive of almost too much reward or the wrong kind of reward, like monetary commission, you do this, you get this, can almost backfire. It can it can de-incentivize people. So I, I added on part two to that presentation from last year just so we could scan through it really quickly because I think it gives a really good example of what we're going to expand on today. So just very, very quickly, and this is not going to at all... Um, you know, be an actual re-review of the study, but uh, this was kind of just reviewed in this particular paper that I was looking at. The, the The goals were to figure out what truly does motivate people, do extrinsic, and there's that word, extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, do extrinsic incentives uh, actually incentivize people? Do, well, well, if there's a bigger piece of the pie to gain, does does more incentivize more more reward equal more uh, behavior more output, um, and the answer was yes for some people, uh, and and we we can use those external motivators for tools, uh, but at the same time, in this, if you remember, uh, it was it was a kind of a multidisciplinary study. Uh, It was it was driven here at MIT and University of Chicago, but they also wanted to include some people who would not be necessarily in our culture, you know, because America, capitalism, go, 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 earn, earn, earn. They kind of wanted to see if in other cultures, if if that was truly an incentive. So let me uh, I'm going to kind of skip through some of these things, Um, like I said, so they were going through MIT students, Chicago students. Uh, giving them, you know, incentives for tasks and, and recall, you know, things like that motor tasks, even like, like even things as like if you can play this game faster or better than somebody else, you'll win, you'll, you'll get something. And uh, let me go back there real quick. Uh, In eight of the nine tasks we examined across three experiments, higher incentives led to worse performances. So they literally showed that, that sometimes when you, when you put too much pressure on people, put that kind of incentive on them, it can actually de-incentivize people. Um, so, so that was an interesting thing. But then we're going to get to some of the, uh, the results here. Uh, as long as the task involved a mechanical skill, bonuses, uh, et cetera, you know, then, then it would kind of improve because it, it was fun. It was almost a game. But once, once it was something that you had to really think through and you could second guess yourself, then again, you know, going back to the way Dan Pink interpreted this, you know, external motivation can actually hurt people. Now, that alone I don't think was the end of the story. You know, the, he, what I think he wanted to show, successfully he did, and I think what the data in the study showed is just having this pavlovian conditioning of, you know, go get this reward, go fetch that ball. And if you do it the best, you'll, you'll gain something. You know, we're more complex than that. And, and that's what this next study that I, I looked at uh, really showed. So let me, uh, let me skip through some of this stuff. Um, well, I, I'm going to stop here. And in, in, when Dan Pink was really articulating this, again, his interpretation of, of what the real research was Is that we do more for things like autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Simon Sinek, what's your why? Self-determination theory, number one goal, number one motive for all people is autonomy. You know, those things are more important than extrinsic goal. So before we even get into this week's study, I, I wanted to use this that we covered last year as a backdrop because if you have this framework, even as you interpret Today's study, it's going to make a lot more sense. We we know external goals as tools can be helpful, but only if we're using those tools to build intrinsic motivation. And the more I've been thinking and reading about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, the more... I've come to see intrinsic motivation not as a thing that you achieve, and therefore, you've superseded external, you've self-actualized to a way where now you are the Zen master of intrinsic motivation, but it's very contextual. It depends on what that goal is and, and what, as Dan Pink showed here, what truly motivates us and it's also better to think of it as a process it's not a thing to achieve but a process that can hypertrophy we can get better at it and it's also a process that can atrophy so when you see a goal in front of you one that you you, you claim you want to achieve ask yourself what am i going to get for achieving this goal because that's that's key you know what will i get not so I think it's a pretty cool goal to have uh, if I lose this amount of weight, if I, if I win this particular bodybuilding contest, or if I achieve this degree, like, like why? You know, what's your why? What are you going to get? And I think that's even better than asking what's your why? What is totally and truly in this for me? Because if it doesn't lead you to autonomy or mastery or purpose, some kind of internal value then all of the external goals you can check off the list, all the things you can achieve will never amount to internal change. And so as I keep saying, it's not one or the other, either or. It's not external or internal. It's how can we create this environment, make sure we're achieving the right goals, make sure we're pursuing them in the right way because it truly is going to build something internal. So... um, let me kind of skip ahead here that's all i wanted to show for that one okay here's here's today's study uh so the european journal of neuroscience uh this uh 2013 i think the study was done just a little bit before that but what they wanted to do from prediction error to incentive salience mesolimbic computation of reward motivation all that means this this is a guy first of all this this uh kent barrage uh he, he has done a lot of research. He's, he's well known in the uh, pursuits of knowledge in motivation, a lot of dopamine research under his belt, but he's a scientist that, you know, when you're looking at neurochemicals, you're looking at things of the brain, you're a scientist, you know, those tend to be very quantitative, you know, here's, here's something we can measure, but when it gets into human behavior, now it's more qualitative, like, okay, like how do you measure that? One of his goals in, in, I think, this particular research review, this meta-analysis, was to try to create more of a quantitative approach. And and he literally created some algebraic equations, you know, if this, then that. And and he started looking at motivation from that perspective. And especially, you know, with his background in in dopamine, you know, that's where the mesolimbic uh, system comes into play. But then computation—that word. How can we compute, you know, t- so we can have a very predictable response? If you do this or this or this or this or this and this, can we mathematically compute a a correlation to a better outcome? So I will I will start out right off the bat by telling you guys that uh, this is this is deep stuff, like you know. Anybody could listen to my presentation and and if they have any mastery of psychology, I'm sure they could poke some holes in what I'm going to say. Um, And and so I'm refraining from going that deep into the actual studies. I'm going to stay on a more superficial view and show you what, what this researcher looked at and what they found and, and not go too deep into the weeds because I don't want to say anything out of my field and, and, and be in error to confuse you guys. So I do have a lot of direct quotes and a lot of times in our research reviews, I kind of skim past them to get to the good stuff, to get to the numbers, to get to the interpretation. We're going to go through some of these things line by line because it's, it's really well-written. So it just, the abstract, the overall premise of why to do this reward contains separable psychological components of learning incentive, motivation, and pleasure. So think of reward first. You know, this is, this is a theory that human beings do things for reward. I, you know, when my, my grandson, you know, puts his shoes on and I say, yay, good job, buddy. Yay, you did it. He starts clapping, and he gets all excited and he knows that's a good thing. I can put on my shoes. And and that's what we talk about. We're talking about reward. And what I'm doing in his brain is causing him to release dopamine. And dopamine will encode those memories in the hippocampus and different memory cells and different neurons throughout the brain. And and then that's repeatable. So it's very Pavlovian. But this researcher contends that's not enough. Like that, that has been the school of thought for reward and motive and goal attainment for a long time. You get the right reward. You get the right pat on the back. You have a big enough incentive and that will make you do it. And that's what Dan Pink in the article we just went over, the study we just went over, showed, yeah, not so fast. That's not exactly it. You can give people big rewards and they still won't do it. It can actually make them fail. They they can do worse at goal attainment with certain rewards. So if if reward isn't everything and dopamine isn't everything, what are we missing? Most computational models have focused only on the learning component of reward, but the motivational component is equally important in reward circuitry. So, so what he's saying is, you know, we, we've focused on the learning, like learn this task, true it, let's put on your shoe, yay, true it, you learned a task. But we haven't really looked at the actual reward part. What are you getting? You know, does that dopamine really matter? It, you know, is, is there something more than just that neurochemical circuit? Uh, so modeling the motivational component requires recognition of additional control factors besides learning. So it's not just learn, reward, learn, reward, and eventually you'll keep doing that because you... Remember, you get a reward. Eventually that kind of fades. And I think you guys can immediately think of examples like that. Um, You know, like, okay, I, you know, I I achieved something, you know, maybe I I, I was a good boy and I ate my oatmeal and protein powder for breakfast and I did it every single day and, and I felt good. Like that was a win. Every day was a win. I stayed on my diet. Well, after 20 days, 40 days, 50 days, does that mean that reward circuitry has now become so ironclad that I'll never eat a donut? I'll never eat a stack of pancakes instead of my oatmeal? Clearly not, You know this, this doesn't cement things in, there, there has to be more. So uh, take a look real quick, um, not that you have to remember this, but uh, the interesting thing about this dopamine circuit is that it really kind of integrates a lot of your brain. Um, if you look down at the amygdala, which is more the autonomic nervous system, it's, it's kind of the interface between the brain stem and our higher levels of thinking like the limbic system and the cortex, that's where fear base is, fight or flight. Or right in front of that is the nucleus albicans, which is where dopamine is really centralized. Dopamine is that reward hormone. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that drives us to do certain things. Matter of fact, the nucleus albicans is, um, it's kind of the quarterback of the brain. It interprets the stimuli coming in and then tells you what action you're going to take. So think of it in terms of what we're describing here with, with nutrition, you know, stimuli comes in wow, that smells good. Somebody's baking fresh bread. You know, that stimulates, you know, my all of a sudden my nucleus albacons is saying fresh bread. That's amazing. It smells good. My memory cells, my hippocampus is firing away. You know what bread tastes like. Bread tastes great. So then your NAC has to decide, are you going to eat the bread or are you not going to eat the bread? And, and then all of a sudden, so these branches go up to your prefrontal cortex where you can make decisions. You can think they go into your limbic system. How, how would it make you feel? Now you have this devil on one shoulder, angel on the other kind of battle. Like, what am I going to do? Uh, I, I want those feelings of satisfying that, that memory, that encoded memory that makes me feel so good when I eat warm, fresh bread. And then you've got your neocortex saying, no, idiot, you're on a diet. You can't do that. And so, you know, you're your, the, the amount of dopamine and the way the, these synapses connect to your ultimate behavior has long been thought as just that simple encoding of dopamine. You reward the right behavior and you'll learn. You'll be like that Pavlovian dog or that mouse that's hitting the right lever for the, the food pellet. And, and that's how you do it. And in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, that's kind of what's taught or at least... A foundational premise is you you know you use a list of rewards and punishments, rewards and punishments. But again, not that easy when it's a very complex human being with a lot of competing incentives and drives. So continuing on with this, just line by line, just just the beginning parts. Associative learning and prediction are important contributors to motivation for rewards. So the learning part in the prediction, our ability to predict. So Um, you know, think of, think of the, the Stanford marshmallow study. They tell all the little kids, here's one marshmallow. I'm going to put it right on the desk in front of you. I got to leave the room for 10 minutes. If you you can eat this, if you want, if you're hungry, if you just love marshmallows, feel free to eat it. But if you don't eat it, when I come back, I'll give you two. You can just like, you got to there, there's, there's a predictive model there. So the child now has to, you know, you know, can predict in the future. This is what one marshmallow is like is, is this what it's going to taste like this is what it feels like to eat one marshmallow if i can wait 10 minutes i get two i get double and so you know of course landmark seminal study um but that's that's what that associative learning is and sometimes there's that novelty maybe a, that's the first time a kid has ever faced that and other kids may have learned through predictive, and they have this predictive capacity now that, hey, I'm cool, I can wait, I've done this before, my mom's made me do this with toys, my mom's made me eat my vegetables first, then I get dessert, like, you know, I've, I've been through, through this before, so there's been some learning there, already some encoding. Learning gives those incentives value to arbitrary cues, such as the, the condition stimulus, um, and learn cues for reward are often, the, are often potent triggers, for example, learned cues can trigger normal appetite in everyone, like I was giving this a bread example, but they can also trigger compulsive urges and relapse in addicts. So, for example, uh, there is some overlap. If if if, if there is an addict, let's say a drug addict or an alcoholic, and they they kind of find that they're under assault, like they're their willpower muscle, their ability to make good decisions is just at a low point. Maybe, they're, maybe they have a drug addiction and now they're trying to diet and they're just so beaten down by working so hard to try and diet and, and that willpower is being tested so much, they're actually at a higher risk to relapse in, in their addiction because this is the same reward circuitry so there, is, there are specific things that, that we can be triggered by associative learning, but there's also some overlap because this is all in that same same mesolimbic system. But again, learned association contains only information. It's just, you know, if we as researchers or scientists or even end users of science think, okay, I got it. That's what reward does. encodes memory, reward, punishment, risk, like got it but that's the mere knowledge. There's, there is more, it, it, the, the last sentence, something else is required to translate remembered knowledge into motivation that can actually generate and control behavior. That something else is the, you guys are covered my thing here, um, topic of this paper. Let me get to the next slide. So one reflection of the non-equivalence between knowledge and motivation is the observation that learned cues are inconsistent in their motivating power. So now we're getting to a big secondary premise point. One reflection of the non-equivalence between knowledge and motivation, so I can learn, 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 I know this is good for me, is the observation that even with all that knowledge, it doesn't exactly control motivating, motivating power. I, I, I thought of one quick example I've always taught my kids. like as soon as they were 18 years old, part of their graduation from high school, we would start a Roth IRA for them. And so we're like, here, here's your Roth IRA account. We, we had to, you know, spend 500 bucks to open it. now it's yours forever. You can start contributing to your retirement. And I would show them dollar cost averaging stats. You know, if you save thousand dollars a year for 10 years in your 20s and never invest again, or you wait till you're 30 and invest from 30 to 65. you know, So 35 years of investing versus 10, you'll actually have twice as much money as if you just do it now. So even if you can just put a little bit of money, just put 20 bucks a month in, 25 bucks a month, do anything. The more you put in now is incredible. That's knowledge. They're learning something. Out of my four children, guess how many started putting their money into their Roth IRA right away? One out of four. So everybody's like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense, dad. Good advice. Shit, my car's on empty. You know, I don't even have money for gas. I can't, there's no way I can save. Well, one of my kids decided I'm going I'm to do this. Like, that's amazing. I learned something, but it certainly didn't motivate everybody. So knowledge doesn't necessarily motivate everybody. The same drug cue that potentially triggers addictive relapse in a dismal occasion spiraling out of recovery may have successfully resisted on many other previous encounters. So what is that one time? You guys as dieters know this. What makes that one time we crumble that time that we crumble versus the 800 times before that, that we were fine? And I know you guys will get this because you've been in that situation. It was probably some other uh, stimuli that, that really had you on the ropes. You know, you were, you were depressed about something else, or you felt very anxious, or you were having relationship difficulties, or you were getting very little sleep because of job stress. And, and then all of a sudden, it shouldn't be surprising, that's when we cave in. So same knowledge, same person, same brain, same life, same goal. And there are times that it just doesn't work. So relevant states of psychological appetite, uh, states of stress, especially for compulsive consumers, uh, you know, tr- it's just very, very difficult. Trying to take just one bite or something can also enhance the temptation power of reward cues. Motivation fluctuation is nearly ubiquitous in daily life, both for normal reward operation in path and in pathology of extreme addictions. Fluctuation in the temptation power of learned cues needs to be a set or addressed and computational models. So again, the scientist is trying to say, look, we got to get down to this, like we, we need to really lay out all these variables, very much like I've been doing the last few weeks on motivation to see what's exactly happening. And is it something we can control? So how can some how can how can such fluctuations in temptation power be generated by the brain or be computationally modeled? Fluctuations in motivation intensity triggered by a reward cue are generated in large part by neurobiological state fluctuations acting within the mesocortico limbic reward circuits that react to the cue. Um, let me see, what was I? on here? Indeed, dopamine level fluctuations, both tonic and phasic are among the most potent modulators of cue triggered temptation. So I'm, I'm going to tell you guys up front that we're, we're going to start looking at what dopamine does because that's been the normal model. We're going to look at, you know, how powerful is this? And in this old model, when, when I say old, it's the one that this particular researcher is challenging. Is it just a matter of controlling dopamine? Because there are actually several books on the market by neuroscientists that would make you believe this. Uh, do, there's a book called Dopamine, the Molecule of More. Um, you know, a couple other ones, I probably have one or two in on my shelves here. And, um, you know, they, they talk about if you can control dopamine, you can control everything. And, and that leads to the fact that, you know, maybe there are these external f- motivations that do give you a little bit more dopamine. So you have to learn how to get that dopamine rush and capitalize on that and control it. And then that will be how you win the ball game. I think this guy, as you'll see at the end, uh, you know, rightly says dopamine is a mediator. I mean, it's there. It's, it, it drives a system. <clears throat> but if you look at it as just that mechanical approach and you don't factor in, you don't find a computational way to measure and quantify and analyze all these other psychological states, you know, the, the name it and tame it kind of um concept where it's like you know we can just see what's happening and therefore what to be watching out for then there's no way you can control dopamine so fluctuations in incentive salience which is just kind of the you know the fluctuations of how motive works motivation works evoked by a constant cue happened because the motivation is generated anew in each moment of encounter with a previously learned cue for reward So there's the learning, there's the previous cue that you know what we're trying to rely on, but yet each temptation is new. The level of motivation is not simply a passive function of learned associations carried over from stored memory caches of previous outcome values. Changes in neurobiological states dramatically shift relevant motivation intensities, and even new neurobiological states can shift cue-triggered motivation without need of retraining and before any further learning occurs about the reward outcome. So kind of some things we've already chatted about. Okay, so now I'm gonna start giving a little bit of commentary on what they actually studied and and the different models out there. So this was more of a literature review, not a meta-analysis. He was going through all of the studies that have been done in in narrative form, contrasting them. So one of the major schools of thought is just this incentive salience integrates two separate input factors, the current physiological neurobiological state. So how I'm feeling right now, and then the previously learned associations about reward. So there's the knowledge. Um, If I save money, I'll have more at retirement. That's you learn that. But have you really, you know, is there a point in time where you've lost it or you know, sometimes, and this is one in my post today, I kiddingly use kind of a negative line because when we think about reward, it's always the positive reward, but sometimes negative consequences, the bigger teacher. You know, we, we, we seek pleasure, but we also seek to avoid pain. So sometimes when you've been hurt the worst by something, you've learned the hard way, so to speak, you know, then, then it makes more sense. And, and dopamine can also encode that in your memory, that it, there's not just a going toward pleasure, but a moving away from pain. So, so two critical things. There, there's that history that's encoded in memory, but then there's also that neurological state. And, and here's why this is so important. This is why these two points, like if you can put this on a teeter-totter or parallel tracks, however you want to graph this in your brain this, this is, this is where you will win or lose every single time. And, and I don't mean to make this all about, um, you know, cause, cause they do use uh, the, the example, a lot of dieters in this particular, uh, meta-analysis or, or research review, but it, it's, it's goal attainment. It's the person who says, okay, today's the day I'm going to, I'm going to write three new chapters in my book. I've got eight hours, I got nothing planned. And then 12 hours go by and you realize Gosh, I got distracted by Facebook and I got, you know, kind of anxious. So I took a walk and then I started playing video games and now it's nighttime and I didn't write a single word. You know, you didn't attain your goal. You wanted to do something and you didn't do it. So what changed? You know, you, you had a change in your neurobiological state. You you didn't have enough there to drive you. You had the knowledge. You even had the, the environment. You, you know, constructed how you want you save the day just for that. Yet we didn't do it. So that's a huge part of. I think it's actually the biggest part of not attaining goals. It's not what we do to sabotage ourselves sometimes. It's what we don't do. It's what we don't get done with the amount of time we could be doing it. So so think of those two things. The the current physiological neurobiological state which fluctuates every single second you're awake. You think you've got your mind locked in and you're just sight locked on this goal and it doesn't take hardly anything to get you off track. You've got to really monitor that state. And then you also have to check in with those those learned associations. Do I really understand why I want this? What's in it for me? What am I going to gain? Am I actually hungry enough? Do I want this badly enough, this particular goal? So here are some components before we really get into some application. And then, you know, I hope a really good discussion. So some of the things to think of that are happening. And again, this, this is in this particular paper, this, this is 75, 80% of the paper. And I'm just giving you kind of the headlines of what was discussed and, and what studies have been done. I think there were close to 200 studies that this guy cited, but th- there, there is, and, and again, these are just components. These are things that affect your ability to make the right decision to stay aligned with your goal. There's cue triggering. So, um, you, you know, something that's going to necessarily, may necessarily take you off track. So, um, you know, think of... Th- think of, think of, it's easy almost to think of an addictive mind first. So you're trying to avoid something. And maybe you're an obsessive gambler. I have a friend who he just, he just says, like, I have an addictive personality. My dad was an alcoholic. My dad was a drug addict. My, you know, it's in my family, got all these things. He said, I'm the same way. I get obsessed about everything. And so, so he has to put boundaries in place, but these cues keep coming up. All of a sudden, he's driving by the horse track. All of a sudden, his friends want to go to Las Vegas. You know, now you can do online gaming, you know, just tens of billions of dollars, you know, every week being spent in online gaming. And so trigger after trigger after trigger after trigger. And in your brain, this is where it becomes very frenzied. You know, think, gosh, I, I mean, food aside, I mean, food is one thing. But I think it would help to think of other goals or behaviors parallel to that. Have you ever decided I'm going to do one thing or I'm going to avoid one thing? Like this is a behavior I'm trying to improve in my life. And so I'm laying down the law. The the gauntlet is down. I'm going to do this. Or if it's an avoidance, I'm not going to do this. And then what happens? you think about it more, you think about it more, you think about it more, you get so frenzied, you eventually do it. Like if I'm dieting and my wife, you know, makes cookies and I said, I'm not going to get them. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And yet all I can think about are those cookies. Finally, I say, okay, damn it. I'm just going to get one cookie. And then pretty soon I've eaten a dozen, you know, that that's how every binge starts. If you're somebody who struggled with binge eating you get in this very, very irrational, frenzied state, and you'll even start justifying it. You'll rationalize it. You'll you'll say, "Well, you know, okay, um, you know, the contest isn't for eight more weeks. I've had a really good week. I can do it. I can have a cookie. It's not going to hurt me. I can have a cookie." And you will instantly, because of that cue trigger, you know, you will you will gradually just because you've you've let the dam start to leak. It will eventually break. If there's a high likelihood. It doesn't have to, but there's a high likelihood because you just let that cue continue to trigger you unless you do something to stop it, which is what we're going to be talking about. There's the incentive salience, which is the fact that your moods can shift and, and context just shift all the time. So you, you can never just say, okay, I've got this down. I'm good. It's, you know, you're, you're not, you got to have a little humility and realize that can change anytime. time. There are univalent and bivalent reversals, meaning, um, you know, we we, again, we start to justify things. We can we can say, okay, I've got this. I've got this. This is good. This is good. And then we can kind of reverse and go the other direction. Um, and, And that can be actually a good thing. This this shows that this is the beginning of showing that dopamine doesn't drive the entire show. The fact that we can actually reverse out of that, we can control negative. Uh, dopamine reactions. This is where, uh, you know, they've even trained mice to do this where, um, you know, like if, if, if you, if you do a reward circuit, like every time a mouse touches this lever, it gets a pellet. Okay. So they just learned it's just keep cranking away. Like every time I touch this thing, they can get mice over there, just, just hammering on this thing. Well, you can also set that exact same lever up to shock the mouse. Doesn't take long for him to stop hitting that bar. And so now the exact same behavior, you can completely reverse that wanted versus unwanted effect. So this gets into, I'm, I'm kind of teasing one way to control motive and motivation, which is to attach negative consequences to something. Uh, one example, somebody told me recently, I can't remember where I heard this, I think it was just in a podcast. Um Uh, this this person wanted a certain amount of productivity. I think it was a writer and like he wanted a certain amount of productivity. And so he would tell coworkers, if I don't get this done by this date, here's my checkbook. If I don't get this done, you've got to write a check out of my account to this agency or organization that I hate, I despise, Like, like like the opposite political party he would support or something like that. So he would never want to do that. And so he attached that negative reversal, that bivalent reversal. So he, he now had a, a negative incentive, you know, against the, the ledger of productivity. Um, directedness is another component, which is very specific arousal. Um, so it's, um, you know, th- there's dopamine in this whole dopaminergic system And maybe we're talking about trying to avoid calories. Like here, here's the energy balance I'm trying to achieve. I want my calories here. Here's what my normal meal plan looks like. That's, that's not very directed, but you may find that certain foods are quote trigger foods. So I'm okay with this particular, you know, food plan but man, I cannot have peanut butter in the house. How many people have said that? Like when I'm dieting, I just can't have it in the house. That's a very directed specific arousal versus something like narrowness and breadth. Uh, You know, does a drug addict create an addiction to just one drug or is it an addiction to just escapism? Like I just, I have so much stress or anxiety or depression that I'm, I'll, I'll do anything just to get out of this. So that's, that's narrowness versus breath. But again, that's a factor, you know, going back to nutrition and diet and perhaps working out, uh, you know, what's, what's going to motivate us. Uh, there's a component called reboosting, which is uh, applying cognitive behavioral therapy in incremental steps, which is actually very necessary. Um, I I was actually watching a podcast this week and a guy talking about similar things said, you know, as soon as you get into a rut that you don't want to be in, like, let's just say it's procrastination. You know, you, you can't give yourself a goal that's impossible to achieve, but you'll tell yourself, okay, for every 10 minutes, I can focus and work give myself a little reward. Like, okay, set the timer. I'm going to work for 10 minutes. Awesome. Get up, get a drink of water, do something. See if you can come back for another 10 minutes. See if you can do that like three cycles. So you get 30 minutes of work done in one day and then you're done. Um, another guy that I was talking about, you know, writers, you know, I'm, I'm one of these writers who always feels like I have to schedule a book. Like I'm going to write this book this year and I'm going to spend all day Sunday doing it. I have all these great, lofty goals of how I'm going to achieve it. And yet the truth is, if you just write two pages a day, just write two pages a day. You don't have to have the whole day, one day a week or something, just two pages a day. You can write two complete books a year. And yet we just don't do it because we haven't learned this reboosting incremental reward system like that, that it has to be built. I remember I I said, I'm I'm beginning to look at this more as a process than as a thing to achieve. This is what I mean. You know, you have to build that motivational muscle. Uh, Another component is just having incredibly irrational, high persistent miswantings, which kind of gets us back up to cue triggering. And and this is something that, uh, you know, it's a factor. It's a factor for people who have a certain type of neurobiochemistry, uh, who have perhaps those addictive personality traits, other personality traits, and sometimes this you know can require some deeper psychoanalysis, some some counseling, some therapeutic intervention to say, man, you know, there's more to this than than just dopamine in your mesolimbic system. Like you you have some other things, some wirings, and some things maybe from your childhood and your past that that are are causing this. So that's a component that doesn't make reward and behavior the same across the board. On almost the opposite side of that are rigid habits. If you're an incredibly conscientious person and you you think everything has to be very robotic, you know, you just do it, you're just gonna check it off the list and you're, you're, you're an engineer, you're an accountant, you're a data analyst, like you just do, 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 you're a drill sergeant. Well, Sometimes that just simply is almost bypassing the dopaminergic system. And then we're completely taken off base when things aren't working. You know, we we, we create other pathologies if, if we think that we can just massively control it cerebrally. So all of these are just different factors and components that do affect our ability to stay on point for motivation. So, remember, the old theory is dopamine does this. You do the right things, you get that dopamine reward, and you're good to go. You've now cemented that neural pathway, you're good to go. The new theory is that dopamine does not cause learning about reward. Psychological states are not consistent. So, with a statement that contrary or contrary, then what would it do? Dopamine actually amplifies, it doesn't drive it amplifies. As a matter of fact, in some studies, they completely took dopamine out of brains. So some people have disorders that it's not there, but they can it, you know do this with, with lab animals. And guess what? A lot of lab animals actually did better without the dopamine. Because dopamine doesn't just drive good behavior. It's almost more relevant for driving bad behavior. Without dopamine, we actually tend to like the right things with the right level of intensity. It's dopamine that drives this chaotic, frenzied behavior. So this is this is kind of a big deal. I mean, remember up to this point, We've really focused, not we, I'm not a psychologist, but but you know, the research community has focused on trying to control and corral and implement dopamine in the right way. Now they're saying, wait a second, dopamine actually may be the whole problem. You know, you you guys probably have heard in the news about context changes. The fact that, you know, we we now have cell phones and so forth that we just scroll, 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 scroll. scroll. And we're getting so many context changes that our brains, this is not the kind of evolution that's gonna take a million years to change our species. It is completely changing human brains in real time in the fact that some people cannot focus on anything any longer. The attention span for human beings has been decimated. And it's because we people are trying to hijack the dopamine in our brains, because we want more novelty. So we're seeking these constant novel situations and we're driven to just different, 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 that that's why it's almost turning us all into addicts. Addicts for more and more and more dopamine. So the goal, if you want to create... The, the best path forward for you to achieve something is not to control dopamine and focus it on what you want. It's to almost tamp it down. So let's, let's talk about what that looks like. Uh, I'm going to read their conclusion. First, Pavlovian conditioned st- stimuluses associated with reward must be dynamically translated into incentive salience. So again, what's happening minute to minute in our brain, Uh, Each time the stimulus is re-encountered to motivate, reward, and seek consumption. So that means every single time you're at a decision point, every single time, should I do this or should I do this? Does this help my goal or does this hurt my goal? It's a different context every single time. You can't rely on your old learning. You can't rely on the motivation you had yesterday or 10 minutes ago. Every single moment is different. That makes it almost impossible to say that, okay, I got it. I'm an intrinsically motivated person. I finally figured it out. Now I will always reach my goals. Every single goal, every single decision point, every minute of the day is a brand new opportunity to fail or succeed. So again, it's a process. The translation of conditioned stimuli association into motivation is influenced by current neurobiological states. Well, we've already talked about that. Uh, natural appetite or satiety states, stress states, pharmacological states related to drugs and medication and individual differences all powerfully modulate the factor. Did you guys know, little sidebar, like we take Tylenol for pain, right? For pain relief. You start to get a headache, take Tylenol. Do you know that even affects you psychologically? Like it dampens your ability to feel emotionally, like it reduces empathy and just, you know, even in a good way, it reduces anxiety and stress just like it's dampening your, your brain's ability to pay attention to pain. It dampens your ability to, to feel, uh, you know, even emotion. Uh, And that's what this means. You know, we know we don't make better decisions when we're hungry. Uh, A a really big study. I think, I think uh, Daniel Pinker or, or uh, Steven Pinker, I'm sorry, talked about this in his book enlightenment now, where they did a, a huge analysis of judges and, uh, sentencing for, for criminals. And the only thing, the number one common denominator that drove the decisions for harsher or lighter sentences were how close was the judge to lunch? If he hadn't eaten for three or four hours, you were going to get a harsher sentence. If it was right after the judge's lunch, that was the most lenient sentences they would always give. They did a big data analysis of that. So again, our neurobiological states are everything such modulation helps explain the fluctuations and the power of a given cue or context to trigger temptations of course much more needs to be blah, blah 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 so what are we going to do with this information i really relate it back to emotional intelligence because if i have this goal and i really really do want it and i really want it for all the right reasons it's going to be something that gives me uh, something that I, I that I truly do desire. The the want is appropriate. It st- still doesn't mean it's easy. So, in those times when I am the most susceptible to making the wrong decision, how can I stop, recognize, and manage that emotion? Again, we do this a lot. Like every time we're, we're up against that wall, we don't make the wrong decision. We make many, many, many times more right decisions than we do poor decisions. If, if somebody has eaten, you know, 72 times in a week perfectly, and then it's that one time they, they mess up, those are still phenomenal odds. Like you're still doing a great job, but it still has a consequence, So what can you do in that one time you might've failed by just recognizing like, oh shit, here it comes. This is that time, this is that kind of trigger cue. I, I know I'm in this susceptible psychological state. What's happening in my biology right now that could tip me over the edge? How can I stop and manage this situation right now? Do I just need to walk away? Do I need to get up away from my desk? Do I need to leave the kitchen? Do I need to end this conversation? Do I need to grab a glass of water? Do I need to call a friend? What do I need to do right now to manage this situation? And then again, like in that moment, like, you know, as I'm starting to justify, well, maybe I've had a hard day, you know, had a hard workout. Maybe I can use this extra cookie. You know, can I, can I discuss with myself that short-term want rationally, you know, am I, is it competing with my stated goals uh, in, in a way that's valid, or am I just again in that very sensitive state? Is my dopaminergic system hijacking me? A- am I, in, instead of thinking dopamine is our friend and I need more dopamine, I need more David Goggins if I just can go rah, 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 just go, go, go? <clears throat> you know, no. If you got a high level of dopamine, it's probably pushing you toward impulsiveness. So is it that? Do I just need to calm down? Do I need to take a breath and back up and say, I don't need more excitement. I need more control. And then just logically, this is where, as Viktor Frankl talked about, you know, that gap between stimuli and behavior, stimuli and decision. Can I just insert myself in that gap for a second to say, okay, hang on a second. Time out. All this other stuff aside, what's happening in my brain and and all this dopamine what are, what are my real choices here? I can say yes to this, or I can say no. What's the reward if I say yes? What's the reward if I say no? If you can just logically do that, remember, we've covered other research that shows that, that your entire stress level from cortisol and so forth can drop instantly by 50%. And that neurophysiological state in your brain to your advantage will help you make the better decision. And now how can I resensitize to these goals? This almost gets into the, since we know how moment to moment these decisions can be, this gets into like, how do I stay in flow with that? How can I consciously check in with myself and continue to strengthen this motivational muscle? I think these are some of the questions to ask. Because it's there's such a confluence of things happening, and that's why for those of you who've been with us uh, Monday and Wednesday this week, you know we started writing down all of these things, all of these ways, all of these helpful, um, you know, control mechanisms to make sure we do these things. So with that, let me uh, let me pull you guys back in here. Make sure I don't have any more slides here. No. Nope. Guys, feel free if anybody wants to uh, start unmuting to jump in here. Stop my screen share, and we are still rolling. All right, is that uh, new information? Anybody, or at least interesting enough to uh, to cause you to think differently? Go ahead, Dan.
1: Hey, Joe. Good to see you again. Uh, Number one, I'm looking forward to seeing you over in Worcester on March 5th. I just signed up for that seminar. I'm coming, baby. Yes. I signed up this morning. I'm looking forward to it. I love it. But Thank you me. know what? There's like there's like six or seven things I could comment on, but one the one that I'm really gonna focus on is that slide where you showed the brain. Mm-hmm. And there was all those different elements going on. One of the things that I've learned, and it's and I and now I see the science behind it based on what you were saying. When we were processing all these roses for Valentine's Day, and as you heard, six thousand five hundred in two days. We're working our asses off. Now, as Dr. Kevin knows, I love pizza, especially with pepperoni. So somebody sent in pepperoni pizza so we could just keep working and eat at the same time. So what I did was I opened up the box. I looked at it. So visually I'm satisfied. I put my face right down there and took a big whiff. So from the aroma I'm satisfied. And then I closed the box. Now, I eat pizza and I try to eat pizza once a week purposely because I'm off season. But that wasn't the time for me to eat pizza. So that goes right in what you're saying. I mean, maybe I got my dopamine fixed just from the visual and the aroma element without actually having to swallow it because we know vision, visual and uh, what is it, olfactory kick mm-hmm. in as well. Yes. So that seems like, uh, you know, go into your question about what's my choices here and what's my best choice rather than try to put it at arm's length, embrace it without eating it. So just something to think about.
0: Well, there's also, Dan, if I could interrupt you, um, you know, this is where this sure. researcher was careful to say, this isn't the old theory. This is the new theory. We're replacing the old. It's this is yeah. the old that mesolimbic system is there, but it's not doing what we used to think it did. It's there. It's a component. It amplifies bad behavior, but we got this other layer. We have to worry about that's more proactive. And so you're still encoding memory properly. So every time you do that, like, let's say you do that, like the first time you do that, you did that. That's a risk. You open that box, you get down there, you smell it. It's like, like somebody that's like a kid getting ready to, to, you know, put his hand in the (laughs) cookie jar, you know, but you, you succeeded. And that's a win. You you definitely got some dopamine. Check that box. The next time Mm -hmm. you do that, it's gonna be easier. And then pretty soon you're you will literally derive the same pleasure. Man, all I have to do is smell pizza. Oh, isn't pizza fantastic? That's great. And you can walk away. And it's not even a temptation. Someday it may be in the wrong psychological, Mm -hmm. neurobiological state. But the more wins you chalk up, like that is that is the powerful encoding of dopamine.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it also goes back to when you were talking about your four kids with the uh, Roth IRA, because I got an experience with my two kids very similar. Um, one out of two. <laughs> and uh, it also, do you get um, the charge knowing that you've got a long term, uh, that you just bit uh, a little bit out of a long term goal or not? And I think some people just don't.
0: Yeah. And again, like that, that could be temperament. It could be personality traits. It could be a lot of things. And that's why I said, sometimes you have to literally lose like my, yeah. my oldest, son, you know, this happened even, I'll give you a tiny little precursor. So we told our kids from day one, like you're two years old, you're four years old, you're six years old, you better start saving money because someday you're going to want a car. We're going to match your savings for a car. My oldest son, oldest son, just mm-hmm. pissing away money. Every time he's got 40 bucks, he's buying a video game, you know? So he gets to 16. He's got, well, dad, I got 625 bucks. I said, well, that means you got 1,250. What are we going to get for 1,250? I don't know. <laughs> well, so you haven't been thinking about this? You know, you're 16 years old. No. So we go out and we buy a $1,250 car. He was literally in tears in the kitchen, crying my friends, parents, buy them cars. Why are you such a dickhead father? Why are you an asshole? Like, why are you making me drive this piece of shit? Guess who's a financial advisor right now making three times what I make? Like he learned the hard way and he still talks about that Mm -hmm. moment in the kitchen. That painful consequence shaped his life. So it, it's not the wins sometime that do the most for us. Yeah. Sometimes we have to taste defeat. So it's uh, you can you know, everything's a learning experience. Loud and clear. Good stuff, Dan. And,
1: and great, great reason.
0: Thank you, thank you very much. And I'm, I'm glad you're coming to Mass. That's going to be awesome. Awesome to have you there. Go ahead, Andrew.
2: Okay, so I have a quick comment based on what
1: you just said. Why, you know, how is it or why is it that sometimes people who end up making really serious life change, and I'll put myself in this bucket, that it takes essentially a a very negative potential future uh, or even a current medical event, like when it comes to their health, for them to have that switch, for them to to be able to mentally um, have you know, a motivation that wasn't
0: there before. Unfortunately, it's because after one to two million years of homo sapien evolution, everything that got us here is the conservation of energy. You want the path of least resistance. You want the easiest route. You only survive by staying safe. And so our circuitry is there to basically not extend into risk. It's not to make these complicated, hard decisions. It's to, n- number one, biologically, we're talking about food is to eat, you know, because if you find, if you're, you know, a hunter gatherer, you can, you can get some food. Like that's, that's the lottery. So again, conservation of energy, attaining goals that are hard, doing things that go counter to that path of least resistance for psychological pleasure, physical pleasure that's the hard work in our bodies we we just have not evolved to be to be soft weak people we're you know we're we're getting there because we have too much affluence now and so you know that's why the hardening process and that's why i like david goggins so much even if he doesn't realize it you know when he talks about callousing his mind and going against the grain it's training yourself almost like, like your brain is still in in that prehistoric homo sapien position in this world, crazy world of affluence now, where now it's like, go, 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 just to consume. So that's why, I mean, you just, you just have to constantly, you know, that's why people are so attracted to stoicism right now. You know, it's like, it's so foreign to us to actually say no to pleasure and, and do something for the long term you know, That's 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 more difficult, Um, but but I will say this: like like sometimes we do learn from other people's behavior. My first child was was that one I'm describing. My fourth child, I had to pull ten grand out of my pocket for her first car because she she saw she saw the the pit that her brother drove himself into, and she said, "I'm not doing that." And so she's my little squirrel who uh, you know she's going to be fine in life. She she. She learned the the Stanford marshmallow study by watching her other siblings fail at it. But good good question. Lainey, were you gonna jump in there?
2: I was, um, it just kind of reminded me of the women that we served who were addicts. Um, It was systematic in how we treated some of that. And they were very comfortable with what made them feel good but they weren't comfortable with uncomfortable. And so obviously there was tools that we taught and we did a lot of psychological stuff. But once once they were strong with that, it was an intentionality of putting them in places where they would be tempted and it would be challenging to be uncomfortable or to be without something because I think they had to replace, I don't know all the science, I just know it worked, but they had to replace the, oh, I can only do something because it makes me feel good with I can, I can survive going to this event and they're serving alcohol and I know I have what it takes to get through to the end of it. Or, oh shit, I took a sip of it, but I've got the other people there that are supporting me. What do I need to do different? Because what I brought into that event wasn't what I needed because I didn't succeed. What can I add to it? So there, I think there's a lot to making yourself being uncomfortable and learning that you can survive through it to get to the other side. So I think there's a lot of, I have seen it practically lived out and I think we're all just too afraid of being uncomfortable. And, um, I think those that succeed get okay with being uncomfortable. So otherwise we'd all be succeeding.
0: (laughs) Yeah. and And it goes back to the point I made with Dan is like, don't, don't throw dopamine out. Like it's still there and it's still that strong driver And so to use it to encode the right kind of memory and the right kind of associative behavior is important. And that's why, you know, when I I listened to a a podcast or an interview of David Goggins this week, and it was, it was one where he was pretty, pretty tame. You know, he wasn't screaming and ranting. He was just kind of talking matter of factly. He said, when I was a kid, you know, I was dyslexic. I was stupid. I was dumb. I knew I was dumb. I knew I was the, the, the slowest kid in the class. But I taught myself, you know, okay, so you don't get it. Try it again. 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 He said, pretty soon I got it. You know, they, they wanted me to learn how to, you're gonna, you want to be a Navy SEAL? I've never swam. You know, I, I, I don't know how to swim. Go in the pool. You sink to the bottom. You almost drown. Do it again. 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 He's the only guy to ever go through Navy SEAL training three times now. And, you know, when he was an adult uh, applying, you know, he couldn't even swim. And that's the thing. It's like you learn, you know, and you get those wins and and the biggest thing you get is this confidence that even Andrew, as I'm going against the grain, even when I'm, even when I could have potentially failed here miserably, at least I know I'm going to fail forward. I expect to fail lady. I expect to be uncomfortable. And that's just part of the process. Instead of avoiding it, as you said, Understand that's the doorway to success. And and like you said, that's something that we miss. You know, we, we truly have adopted the principles that we're supposed to be comfortable. I mean, look at society now. You you say the wrong word, you're going to be canceled, you're going to lose your career, you're going to lose your job. You, you, you know, oh my gosh, let's have these, you know, little fragile spaces where we can't uh you know offend anybody. Uh, if you're uncomfortable, let's let's go. You know, let's go sue the right people because they made you uncomfortable. And we're, we're truly losing this. And, and I think all sides of our society are looking at this and saying, man, this this is just a catastrophe. And yet it's just so embedded now. It's it's I mean, I, I do see the pendulum swinging because of it, but it's a it's a it's a bad place we've gotten ourselves for sure.